0: Hello and welcome to Your Book, the podcast the literary nosy parkers. I'm your book inspector, Daisy Buchanan. As always, a huge, huge thanks to everyone who has been reading and supporting my new book, Insatiable, a love story for greedy girls. It's available from all bookshops with signed copies in Waterstones, Foils, Blackwells and a number of independent bookshops. If you'd like to order it from your local and they don't have signed copies in stock, I would be delighted to sign some book plates for them. Just ask. Now, on to today's guest. Nisha Dolan's debut, Exciting Times, Dazzled Reads Last Year. I was captivated by the story of Ava, an Irish woman living in Hong Kong who becomes entangled with a gang of wealthy British expats, eventually getting caught in a love triangle. Will she choose the obnoxious, chilly and yet mysteriously alluring Julian or the sweeter, more straightforward Edith who promises freedom but endings as well as beginnings? Nisha and I talked about looking for ourselves in literature, funny books and getting lost in translation. I would love to hear about your relationship with books and reading growing up and the books that meant the most to you.
1: Yeah, so I suppose the earliest ones that I remember reading were Victorian children's books like Little Women by Louisa May Alcott and other books of hers and Anna of Green Gables. So they sort of fairly simply re- written books that still had an escapist level of I suppose slightly weird words settings I wasn't used to so just something to disappear into really. And I think Little Women
0: is such an interesting choice as well because I don't know about you but the first time I read it everything I read that had different um, women characters in it was most things were quite reductive you know almost like the Spice Girls and it's like you know four women four personalities which one are you And revisiting Little Women now, now they've made the film and realising that there is so much more nuance and subtlety to it. And I think it's so exciting that it's a book that lots of us find when we're very young, but it's about women being allowed to have all kinds of contradictions within themselves.
1: Yeah, it's only when the movie came out that I realised that a lot of people view Amy as not only the villain, but someone who was obviously intended to be the villain. Because as a kid, I thought she was eminently reasonable like she had her flaws like all the other characters but I think I'm much more that kind of person than a Joe kind of person and I'm grateful that I was able to encounter the book on my own instead of I suppose feeling whipped into this opinion that Joe had a right to be a writer but the minute Amy saw herself as a painter she was wrong. This is a terrible thing to admit but other
0: women kind of made me hate Joe. like if someone said oh yeah I'm a total Joe. I'm such a Joe." I'm like
1: are you now it just sounds a bit like wanting to be exempt from something somehow it's, yeah it's, it's, and it's difficult to pinpoint what exactly makes you uncomfortable but I, I feel completely the
0: same I think all the time about Meg's makeover and the slut shaming and that as soon as she you know gets to dare and be audacious everyone you know she's allowed to be pretty and exciting if she's totally unaware of it and she's sort of unspoiled and like oh it's the um the poor girl, you know, going off to the ball. And then as soon as she is having any fun with it, people are looking at her thinking, how
1: dare she? That's very vulgar. Yeah, especially because she doesn't have a whole lot else of a personality. So once you take that away from her as something that she can actively participate in and pursue, what really does she have left? And the answer the book gives us is "Um, making a nice home with her husband. And that's not to disparage that as a girl, but it seems like the other characters who are allowed to maybe more openly pursue their ambitions as a result just have a bit more texture that you can hang on to and actually feel like you know them. Can you think of any
0: characters, now I'm not sure I can, but more contemporary figures who have a bit of a Meg vibe but who are maybe allowed to live more of a life by virtue of being written you know, after the 19th century?
1: Superficially speaking, Emily in Paris, I honestly think Meg would just go do something like that and, uh, you know, produce <laughs> something very ephemerally entertaining and just get on with it. Um, in terms of serious treatment, I suppose it's more notable that it doesn't jump out, that it doesn't discount our consideration of a female character, that she sometimes checks her face in the mirror to the degree that... I think most women written by women do that kind of thing and it's just enmeshed into who they are. And, you know, we don't need an unpacking of why they shouldn't be doing that at the end. Obviously, we've had a
0: globally, um, we've lived in interesting times. Um, I could do a very bad sort of segue, that we've lived in exciting times. Sort of exciting. Everything happened, nothing happened. Um, but I'm curious about whether your reading habits have changed at all during a period where we've all been much more anxious and much more indoors? And if you found it easier or harder to read and whether the books you were reaching for changed at all?
1: I suppose at first I was reading a lot more recent books because with the lack of any social connections, you feel a bit more of a drive to read the things that everyone else is reading, the things that people you know are sending you and so on. But then I found that that turned into a pressure of its own, so of late I've been reading kind of a lot more old stuff so I suppose it's been the cycle of craving connection but then finding too much connection of quite a similar kind again and, again and again and needing to get away from it in the end.
0: I'd love to hear about any of the current books that leapt out and anything you really loved and then about the older books that you found something in when you needed it.
1: There's just so much exciting debut fiction coming out right now. Two that really leapt out for me last year were Real Life by Brandon Taylor and Lust Year by Raven Lodani. I just adored both of them and we just like want the sentences to steep seep into my brain and stay there forever. They're two very different books. I think Taylor has a Virginia Wolf kind of observational multi-dimensional thing where his characters are just really fully embodied and you feel in five senses what's all around them and the senses cross so when someone says something that breaks up the atmosphere it's experienced on all levels and it's just exactly what a lot of us I think have needed this year because we felt just the opposite of that I'm suddenly existing in jars essentially And then Lustre, it's got a kind of quicker pace. It's a lot snappier in its tone um, and it's bitingly enjoyable. I love books, you know, as is the case
0: with Exciting Times where it feels like that sense of very raw observation. And I think it's that reductive conversation that is often had about likeable characters. And, of course, I love books where you see evolution and progression and, you know, people growing and learning and changing... I also love books where people just don't, or when, you know, their circumstances sort of take the opportunity to do that out of their hands, because I think you're right, that's so true to life. And Lustre is all I want to talk about. It was almost like being just shattered from the inside out when I read that last year. I couldn't believe how good it was. And I was torn between just being so delighted to exist in the same universe as it and just being really quite overwhelmed with professional jealousy and envy.
1: I think when you get to read something early, it's such a double-edged thing of like, I want to talk about this with everyone I know, but also you can't resent that you're not able to do that yet because like, you, you just got to read something early. So I can't wait for everyone to have read it and to be able to just talk about nothing else. I really love Edie's very kind of almost lumpen
0: desire I suppose, to have a woman who is super horny. I don't know. I think there have been other books. I'm a very big fan of Jackie Collins and anything in that genre. I love camp, fabulous women who really know what they want and go after it. But I love that Edie is horny and vulnerable, that she's not... She. You don't get the sense that she's always striding around like a sex goddess and that the whole... Nuance and thrill of her relationship with Eric is that he sees her and she does not expect to be seen.
1: Yeah, I think sometimes it takes a book like that to make you realise the implicit gaze of a lot of other books that you've read. It may be incredibly conscious of how desire, when we experience it, puts us in that position, not the position of someone whose desire is there to make someone else horny. Are there any? sort of older books or classics that um,
0: really helped you get through the year?
1: Yeah, a lot of Virginia Woolf, for the same reason as real life, really just that sensory input that I have so so sorely needed. And I think when you take it slow with her, it's so much funnier. Like a lot of it went completely over my head the first time I read her books, because I was thinking in terms of a college essay and you can't get a college essay out of finding things funny so um yeah I'm glad I slowed down my pace a little bit
0: I think that's really interesting we were to do a big sort of clangy name drop um we've just um interviewed Patricia Lockwood and she was talking about how she thinks that not going to college has made her a much better and more thoughtful reader that she is able to see things that she feels that she wouldn't have seen if things were educated out of her. Um, and she's been reading lots of Nabokov, and her new novel is beautiful, and you can really feel that in it linguistically. and. I think someone like, I wonder if any education I have, and and I'm going to be real with you, I wasn't paying attention a lot of the time, but it's ruined me for for Nabokov. It might have ruined me as a reader.
1: Similarly, I feel like I don't have the authority to say English degrees are useless because I completely squandered most opportunities that I was given. So possibly someone who had done it more diligently would have um, gotten more out of it. But... My personal sense is that I'm only glad I went to university because it would be harder to find other jobs if I ever need to down the line. In terms of my career as a novelist, I don't think it's made much of an impact on my writing. But then again, if I slacked off substantially at something else to the degree that I did, then I probably also wouldn't come out of it having an <laughs> effect my writing. So. But
0: then I got a sense with your novel that a lot of your, you know, your observations about people felt so so vivid and I don't know that many books have really done this as you have I think there's lots of kind of sentimentality and nostalgia but to really step out and look at the way we carry around our student experiences for far too long and how often that's linked with privilege as well I suppose it's like school days and you know if you've had a lovely time and you found it quite easy you are going to sort of remember that as a as a golden period, and maybe not be a fully formed adult if if you do sort of let yourself drown in the, the nostalgia of it.
1: Like, I don't think anything in the novel is really concerned with experiences that I've had. This will sound... I'm trying to think of another way to put it, but I can't. I think I'm quite method in how I write. Like, I imagine myself as the character and jot down what I think they would be thinking. So... I don't think there are any links to my environment as such. It's more the one that I've imagined for them. When you were studying,
0: were there any books that you read that you really, really loved? Did your degree bring anything at all to you that took you by surprise in a good way?
1: Contemporary fiction, actually, because I was always very drawn to books by authors long dead. And it really took having to read more recent work, to do it and I'm really glad that I was pushed in that direction because otherwise I just don't know what I would be writing now like <laughs> I would probably be writing historical novels just because I wouldn't know what a contemporary one would look like so and then write um I first encountered her in my degree probably first encountered Maeve Binchy just a lot of Irish women who've been writing in the past 30 years or so I mean Maeve Binchy I came to so so late and
0: I still I don't feel as though she gets her her dues.
1: Yeah completely I think we really weren't ready for Irish women to have literary clout when she was um, setting out and you know we've seen that again with Marion Keys and Patricia Scanlon and just so many women of that generation who, um, I, I don't think they'd want to be spoken about as people who don't get the credit they're due because they do get so much credit and it is mm. completely due. But I think definitely there's a snobbishness around what's literary that often has very little to do with the work itself and very much to do with who wrote it.
0: Oh, for sure. And I do, I feel certainly in the UK with Marion Keyes, that's finally beginning to shift and she is being recognised as a serious contemporary novelist although my god it's taken her a good 20 books more than 20. Are there any of Marion's books that have really resonated with you?
1: I think the first one I read when I was I would have been about 14-15 was Sushi for Beginners and I remember it so well because I was distinctly not allowed to read it because there was sex in it And so the really funny thing about my family is if my mum had read it and knew that there was sex in it, then I was not allowed to read it. But there were all sorts of books just like floating around that she hadn't read and did not know there was sex in. And they were often much more explicit, but I did end up reading them. But anyway, I secreted um, that one away. And yeah, I think it was probably the first book by an Irish woman that I read. So it's almost impossible wow. to be specific about how it might have influenced me, because just seeing the characters speak somewhat like the people around me spoke and think, somewhat about the things that I saw my mother think about was startling. And you don't realise until you're older that that's an Irish-specific thing and that other people grow up reading authors primarily of their nationality. Did you really feel how
0: well the island that is in that book, which is Media Island and Magazine Island?
1: Like, I suppose it was easier to picture things because I'd lived all my life in Dublin, so even things like the little cottage that the magazine editor moves into... You know, my friends lived in cottages like that, some of them. So I could just see it really clearly. And I have no idea how much more or less evocative that would have been for someone who didn't associate that with that. But the thing is, when you're a kid, you don't know what's specific to your city, right? Because you've hardly lived anywhere else outside it. So I'd honestly have to read it again to say whether I think it's a specific evocation of Dublin or whether it's just (laughs) a book that's set in an escapist version of any major city. Can you remember any of the books that you got past
0: your mum where that was sort of explicit but also obscure enough for her not to notice or mind about the sex
1: um train spotting was quite a major one wow yeah (laughs) one of the rare exceptions to my um not really getting my hands on much new stuff yeah um I mean I loved it I loved that it was written in the vernacular not as a way of showing that select characters are poor or stupid but as an author representing their own community authentically and I feel so strongly that that's how vernacular should be used I want to strangle English authors who only use it for Irish characters or Irish authors who only use it for working class characters or what have you I think it's one thing taking it as the narrative voice of a book and giving it that status and it's another thing regulating it only to the sidelines so I just loved the confidence that Irvine Welsh had with that. I think i read it
0: after the film came out, which I certainly wasn't allowed to watch, but I was very aware of it as a very adult cultural phenomenon. There was drugs in it, serious drugs, that's all I knew. And I was really arrested by the funniness of it. I was delighted by it. I didn't see that coming at all. Yeah, completely. And,
1: you know, it's just woven into all levels of it who it's for. It's not for a reader who wants to see an example made of these characters. It's definitely not for a reader who sees the eye dialect on the first page and goes, I'm not reading that, it's too hard to understand. You know, it's for anyone who can try to live with it for the length of a book since these characters have delivered it for their lives. And if you have to live with something for that long, humour probably will come out. I think that's a huge streak that Scottish and Irish literature have in common, just that dark humour and... You know, there are obvious historical reasons why that would have developed. And I think it's just really a sign of, I suppose, commitment to the community that you're depicting, that you're willing to make their experience livable for other people as opposed to misery porn. Yeah, I suppose that's... I found it so
0: resonant and funny and interesting in exciting times, the way we're divided by a shared language. Have you you read much Murakami? No, I haven't. And I think there's one... Translator, who's sort of the guy, and I think he is the guy who also translates quite a lot of F. Scott Fitzgerald and maybe Hemingway into Japanese. And his translations of Murakami books, the language is quite measured. It's all, you know, I don't think it's all in iambic pentameter or anything, but it's got that sort of rhythm. And th- and there's. Another translator of the work who is slightly less well-known and less used, but he uses much shorter sentences and much shorter words. And even though the books are, you know, the plot is the same, the characters are the same, there's a whole different feeling and musicality and bounce and levity to it.
1: I disseminated pains when I started reading Russian novels in my teens, I became very interested in the different translations of Tolstoy, especially. And I developed a huge distaste for the tendency some translators have to try to modernise it. So, you know, when there's 19th century Russian slang, they'll substitute 21st century English slang. And it's just odd. I much preferred, even though they were less accurate, some of the kind of fusty translations that had first come out, because you know, fine, I'll never feel Russian reading it in English. But I want to feel 19th century at least. Which were the, the novels that you, you loved, which are the first that you turned to? I really loved Anna Karenina. I loved knowing that it was all going to go terribly and just getting invested in it on that basis. I loved Crime and Punishment too. My experience reading it was I found it on Project Gutenberg not knowing anything about Dostoyevsky just going like famous title let's see how we go and I was just shocked by how much I started caring about this horrible man with no morals and I suppose that stayed with me that you really don't need to make your readers want to be someone or feel similar to them you just have to I suppose Pace things properly and show the impact, and you'll be able to carry them along. Sometimes I wish I'd read Anna Karenin.
0: I I struggled through half of it, and I failed.
1: I think I was more into it for seeing everyone die. <laughs> so, like that's why I stuck with Anna Karenin. I was in it for the train. <laughs> I love that. Like, I know where this is going. Yeah, like a, a satisfactory outcome guaranteed, as far as I was concerned. Beyond Russian literature. I don't think I've ever asked anyone
0: this. Do you have any favourite death scenes?
1: I wish I'd come prepared. Um, Mill in the floss that was a good drowning. That get to top AAA <laughs> drowning. And did you again? Was it the satisfaction of knowing it was coming? I don't think I knew that. Well, I knew narratively that that was coming, but I hadn't had the book spoiled for me beforehand, which was quite a rare occurrence because I tended to read the Wikipedia entries before I went in I, I suppose to help me focus because it's a lot of text to condense in you know your sixteen year old brain. Yeah, it's funny I can't remember very many deaths. So I mustn't have actually been into the scene itself. I think maybe it was more that there's a certain guarantee of a jaded worldview if you know that something's going to end badly, and that was maybe what I sought. Like I loved Thomas Hardy. I think Jude the Obscure was the first one I read because the title was already like, oh yes, like if I'm going to be miserable, this guy's going to be miserable
0: too. Oh, nothing will get this, you know, the smart adolescent brain like the word obscure.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like a challenge accepted, Jude. Let's go through your struggles. And if you still think you're the obscure one at the end of this, then grand. for <laughs>
0: Do you reread Hardy much?
1: Yeah, I I don't really reread much in general, which is bad because every time I do, I'm like, why don't I reread more? But it's just so hard to make time for it on top of all the new things that I feel like I should be reading. But
0: In the way, what you were saying about a death scene, I think it's the same impulse that drives me to reread this sort of, the certainty of it, perhaps.
1: Yeah, yeah, maybe I get around not rereading enough by reading things that have a Wikipedia entry. (laughs) So I've sort of had the first reading where you're just figuring out where everything goes. It does feel like there's so much choice
0: and more books come out every week than a person could read in a year. And... You know, choosing. How do we know? And I mean, there are no bad choices, but that there are no guarantees with reading that we that we will enjoy ourselves. And so, I think it's extra moving when we do.
1: Yeah, I think as well. I have quite bad big picture reading comprehension. I tend to really zero in on details and then forget what's going around on all around them. So I was a big Sparks note so back in the day. You know, not as a substitute, well, sometimes as a substitute between the work, but, you know, even when I actually read what I'd been assigned, just helped me keep sense of the, the broader scheme of it. I think that's part of why I liked the Victorians. They had all those, you know, in the last episode at the start of each new chapter, because the the original reader would have had a week's gap anyway.
0: I do wonder if that's part of the appeal, that that those really big epic books are written in such a way they, they recognise our need for, for the granular.
1: And I think some of that is because it's the bit that's the most real and therefore the most escapist. It feels like a genuine snippet from another life that you can sample, whereas the grand scheme of novels tends to be mad and nothing like how things unfold in real life, you know, far too neat. And it needs to be that way because, If it were as chaotic as actual life, then we wouldn't be able to appreciate the details. So I think that's a sacrifice that you make when you write a novel. You accept that the broad outline is going to be somewhat improbable so that you can have all those kind of delightful, oh, that feels like a real person moment.
0: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. Plushcare.com/slash/weight-loss. We'll be back to Nisha soon, but now it's time for my steal of the week: Home Cooking by Laurie Colwyn. Colwyn's novel Happy All the Time has been a steal of the week before. It was the book I loved the most in 2020, and it might be my most beloved book of all time. And Home Cooking is the sort of recipe book that feels like a novel. It's a kind of memoir, and I read it as a sort of spiritual text. When craving any kind of emotional nourishment, when I'm feeling hollowed out and bloated by the 21st century, I shall always come back to Colwyn. This is maybe the cosiest book I've ever read, but also the least twee. There have been so many aspirants and imitators, and no other writer who is capable of writing with such glamour and elan of the pleasures of standing at the stove and gorging yourself on a panful of fried aubergines. Home Cooking by Laurie Colwyn is published by Fig Tree. Now, back to Nisha. I was wondering whether there are any books that you love to give as gifts or books that you have been really delighted to receive as a present. To be honest, um, I'm not a
1: gifter on either end. Like, I, <laughs> I, I would never directly tell someone that if they'd just given me a book and I hope no one who ever has is listening to this podcast, but there's always just a bit of me that's like anything else <laughs> like... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because there are so many books that I want to read and will never have time to and now this thing has been bumped to the top of my list by the fact that it has an, as- an emotional association with someone I love and then likewise I don't give books as presents for the same reason unless someone has expressly said that they want to read that book but are waiting for it in paperback and then I'll like buy them the hardback as a treat but yeah in general I would just hate to then cause someone else that anxiety of like, I know I had this big list of what I need to read and I don't have time. And now Nisha will think I'm a bad friend if I don't have this one read in the next month. So yeah, I know I'm way too anxious
0: for books as presents. But it's so hard, isn't it? And I'm such a hypocrite because I am desperate to press books into people's hands. Um, I was talking to a friend and I went on at length about um, Standard Deviation by Catherine Heine, which I read just before Christmas, and I adore Um, her new book that's coming out in April in the UK, I think. Um, Early Morning Riser. It's just so beautiful and magnificently, kind of darkly, quietly, funny and moving. Um, And so I spent a good 10 minutes talking about how great Standard Deviation is and how she must read it. It's like, I'll send it to you. And then I thought, Oh, but actually, sometimes people do that to me. And sometimes I feel excited about the book they're recommending. And sometimes I think, oh, I just feel like I'm being bossed about.
1: Yeah, and I think as well, if your job is related to books, and you're dealing with people whose jobs aren't or who maybe aren't that immersed in it, who just don't have as much time to read, kind of your expectation of what's an obvious book might be quite different. So You know, a couple of years ago, I would have thought nothing of just giving someone a Zadie Smith novel in the expectation that they haven't read it. And now that idea makes me shrivel up in horror. Like, what would I be seen as saying about them that they haven't even got that far into, you know, what's new? If you're going to give anyone a book, though, Zadie Smith, you can't go wrong. Well, I suppose that's the problem. Like, how do you find something that's so universally pleasing, but that they won't have read? Which of her books kind of stay in your memory or they're all their own animals the thing I can't remember it word for word but she has a great quote about each book being an ecosystem that teaches you how to write it and there being no general idea of craft it's always about the thing that you're currently making so you know I'd be happy saying they all I mean I don't think anyone disagrees with me this isn't a radical opinion Sadie Smith's actually quite a good novel but yeah um I think on beauty is the one I love the most. But I really can't tell you why. I think it's just the most satisfying world. I, I, I honestly don't know. I think when I really love a novelist, I turn to a complete babbling fool when I try to explain why. It's just such a visceral thing. It just sinks into you. I think that's the power of really great
0: books is it's a feeling, isn't it? And I think it's interesting that we have both studied literature. I think you in a much more dedicated way than me. And that and it was all about my experience of it was very much almost being kept at arm's length from the books and not really being allowed to engage with the text directly and having to find lots of other people who died long ago who'd said what you wanted to say before you were allowed to say it. And I still wanted to come back and I still read because of the way it makes me feel and not because I want to make academic arguments. And I think that's why books are just that that magical and that special but I do think that On Beauty has this really arresting stillness and this really gorgeous melancholy that I find it very difficult to resist but then I love I really love um
1: is it Swing Time? Yes yeah I love Um, that one too I, it, especially the scenes with the little girls and I want a whole Elena Ferrante style series about them honestly. Mm, it's just a really I thought perfectly
0: observed about you know the, the fractious nature of friendship and I'd never thought about that book in the context of like Elena Ferrante and the um, ne- Neapolitan Quartet but I think you're so so right but, you know it's got the the violence and the tension in that relationship and that Someone like Zadie Smith, who is just so, so talented, is able to capture so evocatively that sense of not being good at the thing that you long to be good at more than anything in the world. And that's a really unconventional and beautiful and sad love story, I think, about the unre- her unrequited love of dancing.
1: Yeah, and I think as well, in Springtime and in NW 2 she has a really good grasp on what kind of girls are drawn to be lifelong friends with each other I think a lot of the time when we see those slightly competitive female friendships there's one who comes out on top again and again whereas I think what Smith gets is like in both those pairs of friends there's not even a synergy there's you know, one of them always has something that the other lacks and they're always throwing up different things about each other and it's an enormously dynamic and complex thing. So it's plausible that they would never be able to quite let each other go in their minds. I love that. I think that's so that there are so many different...
0: I was going to say there are so many different kinds of love other than romantic love. But I think that friendship is very much romantic love. And it's much more kind of nebulous and hard to define. And it's much less clear in the way of a starting point and an ending point, which I think makes it more interesting. I've just read a book by a great debut writer that's come out this year. It's called Open Water. And the writer is Caleb Nelson. I don't know if you've read it, but I love that within that book, he frequently talks about N.W. and evokes it. And he's writing a lot about South London. But the character talks about the way that he lives and the way that he finds a space and that reading the novels of Zadie Smith gave him the opportunity to carve that cultural space for himself and to exist in a fuller way, in a brighter way.
1: Yeah, no, I haven't read it, but I'm now even more intrigued that I already have been. So many people have been raving about it, but that definitely sounds like something that would resonate with me because I just, I, I love the unapologetic specificity of the area of areas of London that she writes about. And it sounds like a transferable mode of London engagement, I suppose, where... You know, like NW, the point isn't if you write a novel set in this specific part of North London, you can do this. It's it's okay to take any given pocket of London and consider it an entire universe. Or, you know, it's okay to take any pocket of any place, but I think London especially, you know. And I'm curious to know what you think about
0: this as some... I mean, I love that bit where um, uh, Ada... I think reveals to Julian that she's never been to London in exciting times. And there's a real, like, hideous, sort of very funny, English-centric. It's almost like saying, I've never breathed air, I've never used a towel. It's like, how can that be? And But I do wonder whether London has been made into such a cultural touchstone. We can all feel that it belongs to us a little bit and we can visit it a little bit, whether that's because we have been or just because we've seen it on TV all the time or we've read about it in books all the time. And, and what Zadie Smith is doing is being part of that tradition and kind of democratising it further.
1: suppose what I like most about how she writes London is her commitment to the gaze of Londoners because I think, I, I mean, I... I I'm reluctant to give, like, my incomplete observations on English people because I really haven't lived in England for all that long. But I think there's a tendency of people from the home counties to go to London in their 20s, move out when they buy a house in the home counties and then commute from then and forever see London as the place to be young, erasing the entire existence of people who live their whole lives in London and whose families have done for decades. So I like that groundedness that Smith has in community and in an ongoing London instead of it being this kind of bright lights big city affair. I'd really not thought about that before and I think that's such
0: a a brilliant point. It's kind of Dick Whittington isn't it? That is the say the original London story I mean it's almost certainly not the original London story but it's the London you know they say don't they that the one of the only stories is a stranger comes to town.
1: Yeah, although I think my gaze on that was probably a bit dualistic because that was the one that I got in literature over and over again written by English people. But in terms of my family history and that of the people I grew up around, London was very much the place that the younger brother who wouldn't inherit the farm went or someone who couldn't afford training for a given thing in Ireland and it was cheaper or free in England or just somewhere that you would try to save up money or somewhere you would go and the latest economic crisis had hit and there were no jobs here and they needed cheap labour to build up the national rail. And just, you know, it's very much the core in the Irish imagination still, I think. And obviously with the Celtic Tiger, that got upgraded to like the place you trained as an accountant for a lot of people, but... I think we're too connected for there to be any kind of naivety around that it's definitely not a perception that the streets are paved with gold because people would come back every Christmas and you'd know that that wasn't the case from what they said but I, I think it's rare for you to get as wide a range of views on somewhere as Irish people do in London because we're constantly bombarded with English people's representations of it and all the media we consume But then we have so many first-hand perspectives, even if we've never been. So much of geography
0: in novels is, I think, built on hope. We need to know where we're going to run away to, even if if we're not actually going to make it there.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think there's such room for pathos around places not living up to expectations and room for not seeing what happens. Like one of my favourite plays as, as a teen was Philadelphia, Here I Come, because America stayed always in the distance and it kind of hammered home that when it doesn't, that representation is quite beside the point. And even when it's not there, we can fill in for ourselves because it's not the really important journey. The journey is the anticipation. I was wondering
0: whether there are any Irish writers that you feel are underread, or that you'd love to talk about or point listeners in the direction of?
1: Yeah, I think... Nicole Flattery's collection, share Them a Good Time, is fantastic. Like, honestly, I I can't say who's read another under it because I just don't know. <laughs> like, I don't know what books sell, I don't know what books are vaunted, I don't um, pay I, enough attention to. Just... I'd like people to read Nicole Flattery. Um, I'd like people to read Molly Aitken. Um, she's got this dreamy kind of prose style um, I haven't read them yet, but I'm really excited for Roisin Gibbons' essay collection. Gosh, um, Michelle Gallen, her debut this year is really good. Um, Big Girl Small Town, yeah, lots.
0: One of my favourite books of last year was Patrick Frane's essay collection, and that really, really took me by surprise. Um, and I, you know, I thought, oh, it's going to be you know, fun, and it'll make me laugh, and it'll probably be quite wise, and I was sort of, you know, weeping on the floor as observations about um you know talking about his work with sort of vulnerable young people and um you know his decision to to not become a parent and sort of thing and a but, and I've desperate to read and I've not yet read um Sinead Gleason's Art of the Glimpse and I loved Constellation so very much
1: yeah yeah she's fantastic and she's such a champion for such a breadth yes. of other writers too it's just incredible how she can produce such a body of work while remaining so engaged in the literary community and in uplifting other voices. I sometimes feel, as a writer,
0: I want to be alone and I want to just be left to get on with it, and I don't want anyone to bother me. And then I do that for a bit and think, oh no, I'm lonely, and I want people to come and be nice to me. And where is everyone? And I've always so appreciated. The kindness of other writers and also been very aware it's because you know they get it
1: (laughs) I have been very reliant on social media not only for the usual reasons but because I haven't been in a community of writers before like it was a very solitary affair for me besides six weeks in university I've never done any kind of creative writing course or anything so this year it really has just exclusively been you know connecting with people on twitter and all the rest of it so Hopefully there'll be, be a day when events get back to normal and stuff and I can see more people in person. But until then, yeah, that's a, a nice support to have, definitely. I, I mean, have you been able to
0: visit any bookshops in the last year?
1: I haven't done any events in bookshops. The Cheltenham Literary Festival did um, happen in a modified form. I did a panel with Dr Camilla Pang, whose book I would heartily recommend. Um, You know, it was nice, just... I suppose, having a presence in the world for a bit. But, yeah, on the whole, it's been pretty quiet. I do miss bookshops
0: a lot. I'm very, very excited, not just for things I do in them, but also
1: I just want to go and um, buy books. I I suppose just feel like everything is 3D again. Like, have you seen that New Yorker article about how... um, for the rewards of love we must face the mortifying ordeal of being known the, the heavily memed article I, I feel like a modified version of that principle applies to every aspect of life like other people mightn't always know us as fully or as well but i think we need more vulnerability than is possible although you know in other respects we're way more vulnerable than is healthy or productive but i think the fact that you can if you choose exist socially entirely in a version of yourself that you've to some extent curated is really harmful. Like, I want Mm. to be in public doing stuff again and not thinking about how I look to other people and not able to record or scrutinise it after the fact and just have that be a part of myself. It's been a very self-conscious
0: period of time. And I do think as well that that polish we're all trying to project, I'm doing it very, very badly. But... I think that at a time when we do need to be a little bit more vulnerable with each other and a bit more understanding with each other, it heightens and it flattens. Because I do keep thinking that, oh, we're so weirdly lucky, that's not quite the word, but imagine if this is all happening 100 years ago and what on earth would we have done then? But there are so many technological things in place for us to, that allow us to live through this fairly frictionlessly. Maybe we could have done with a bit more friction. I don't know.
1: Yeah, yeah, because community has eroded in large part because of that lack lack of friction. We don't know our neighbours as well anymore because we haven't needed them for as many things. It's just so much a part of, certainly, Dublin's history, the sense of solidarity, and even when most people had nothing, they had people that they could go and knock on their door. And, like, even when my parents grew up, you absolutely did not lock your door, and you absolutely would expect someone to come round at any minute and there's part of me that recoils in horror at the idea of an unexpected guest but there's another part that kind of thinks you know every once in a while it wouldn't be so bad. It's true I think we're so strangely protective of
0: our time I mean I don't have anything better to do but the idea that someone might think that it's so silly when I unpick it.
1: Yeah and I think maybe workplace management has poisoned how we manage ourselves. Like, I know from extensive, repeated experience that I need to be doing things besides writing to get ideas because I need to clock off um, the policing and the filtering long enough for my subconscious to come up with stuff, which is a fluffy way of describing it. I'm sure the science is a lot harder sounding, but, (laughs) you know, if I... Don't have spontaneous things happening to distract me. I'm not going to write anything good. But then when I'm actually sitting down, it's really difficult to remember that and make space for those things. My instinct is always, OK, I'll just sit here for eight hours straight and get the thing written. And then when that doesn't transpire, I blame myself when I'm not thinking like someone who's in charge of themselves. I'm thinking like someone who wants to make sure that someone else shows FaceTime. Oh, that's such a good way of putting it,
0: that we're our own terrible bosses, and that is the hell of being ultimately self-employed. Before I go, I was wondering whether there are any books at all that you've not mentioned that you would love to talk about.
1: Sayaka Murata's latest novel, Earthlings. Have you read Convenience to a Woman?
0: For shame, I have not. It's very much on my list of things I want to read.
1: I I put both her novels on your list then, um, for different reasons, so I think convenience to a woman is I suppose a lot more superficially cheerful but there's a lot going on under it and then um earthlings it takes that a lot more and really delves you into it so it deals a lot more overtly with abuse and trauma but the common theme uniting them is a woman in her 30s who finds herself at odds with her environment and fascinatingly doesn't blame the environment isn't an angry young person lashing out of what she sees around her but just calmly goes I should change this that and the other about myself to fit in and they're kind of foils who throughout both novels bring out that that mightn't be a sustainable approach but yeah it's just this really interesting compassionate look at what do you do if you don't fit in and that's not something you pride yourself on it's not something you're saying to seem edgy it's just your life. It brings us back to, you know, I'm a total Joe. It's it's not that. It's all for all
0: the unwilling Amys.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's if you're trying to pull off an Amy, but all you get is Joe, and you, you side with her or suddenly I side with her a lot more for that reason than someone who prides themselves on their individualism.
0: Huge thanks, Tanisha. Exciting Times is published by WNN and now available in paperback. Thank you so much for joining me for this conversation. Your Booked is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. You can follow us on social media at YBooked, And if you've enjoyed the episode, it would help us enormously if you left us a five star review in order to get other new listeners to find the podcast. You can find a list of all the books mentioned by Nisha on acast.com slash booked and check out her selection in our bookshop on bookshop.org. Finally, I leave you with this from Single Carefree Mellow by Catherine Heiney. The problem with being a writer is that you miss a lot of your life wondering if the things that happen to you are good enough to use in a story. And most of the time they're not, and you have to make up shit anyway. See you next time.